Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at www.great.gov.uk. Hello and welcome to the second Attitude Heroes podcast. I'm Matt Kane, Editor-in-Chief of Attitude, and I want to say a huge thank you to everyone so far who's listened to our first episode, when I was joined by none other than Sir Ian McCallum. The reason we're doing this series of interviews with some of Britain's most inspirational gay men is that 2017 marks 50 years since the start of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. But it's not a history lesson. It's more a chance to spend an hour in the company of some of the most frank and fabulous men we know. My guest in this new episode was best known for years as his alter ego, the bold-as-brass drag queen Lily Savage. Now, with Lily, unfortunately, in retirement, he's known as a comedian, writer, actor and broadcaster. And he's brilliant at them all. He is, of course, Paul O'Grady. When I popped around to his flat in London, he told me about his earliest sexual experiences growing up near Liverpool. There was a wonderful pub on the Dock Road called The Dominion. That would have put my mother in hospital because it was full of prozies, full of toughest queens you've ever met behind the bar and heaving with sailors. So of course, oh my we, God, it sounds brilliant. Oh, it I want to go now. So we were always on ships. So you'd have to do the walk of shame in the morning past the dockers with a carton <laughs> of fags under your arm. You know, I've gone and there'll be wolf whistling. His exposure to the AIDS epidemic during the 1980s. And the bravery of these men, where they try and make light of it. I'm fine, you know. And then they crack a little bit and have a word with you, you know, and say, well, I'm not too good. And then a week later, they'd be in hospital. A week later, they'd be dead. It was that quick in the early days. And the anger that continues to drive him. And some fella outside the pub, city worker with his pint, shouted, hi de hi And I went for him, like pure Lily, verbally, took him to pieces, saw all his chinks, his flaws, and in like 10 seconds sized him up, picked on him. It's a very candid interview. And as you'd expect, Paul doesn't pull any punches. There's also a lot of swearing from the start my kind of podcast. When we recorded it, he had the builders in, so you might hear a bit of banging in the background. But don't let that put you off, because once Paul starts telling his stories, I promise you won't even notice. So, without any further ado, here we go. Paul, thank you very much for having us here in your place. It's very glamorous. I wouldn't say glamorous. It's like a junk shop, and everything you're looking at is off eBay. Well, it's great. I mean, I'm it's... a platinum eBay. I'm very proud. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, I'm God. I love the eBay. <laughs> I love the um, picture of Lily looking over us. That's um, that was done. He's a mate of mine, Goldie. You know Goldie, and he did it. He came on the tea time show. So I've got a present for you. And I thought, I'd never have anything lily-fied up, you know, there's no no sign of it in any of it here or my home in Kent, nothing. But that, I just thought, what a fab picture, you know, he's, so I slung it up. Do you, ever, yeah. um, do you ever sit around here and think, I've come a long way from Holly Grove in Birkenhead? Uh, yeah, they have flashes of that, <laughs> yeah, when I'm moaning, normally. <laughs> so I hate this flat, no, no, no. And then suddenly my mind wanders back to Vicky Mansions in Vauxhall, where I lived for years, a little council flat. And then back to the various dumps and squats we lived in when I first came to London. And then Holly Grove, where I grew up, back in Birkenhead. And I, I say, like, it's almost like I'm skits. So the other, the other was, oh, shut up, moaning, will you, miserable bastard, look what you've got. But it's weird, isn't it? Because it's literally a completely, I mean, I obviously wasn't there, but it's a completely different life. Or it oh, seems, totally, yeah. You know. Well, it's not really, because you stay the same. It's other people change towards you. That's, that's the thing. You know, yeah. I mean, mentally, I'm still the same person. And everybody who knows me all says that. You know, they, they also, you haven't changed. You know, people I haven't seen for years, particularly the drag queens I used to work with, you know, on the pubs. Yeah. And I don't, don't think I have, because it came to me quite late anyway, you know, that sort of telefame and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I was lucky in that way, because if it had come earlier, I'd be dead now. Because I think I'd have pissed and snorted a lot up. Would have. I always feel sorry for these young kids in soaps. When they're 16 and they Yeah, because they're not given a helping hand, you know, they're not looked after by the studio and they look about 10 years older than they actually are, you know, and next thing they're with some terrible footballer in a hotel in Manchester. 
And it's all downhill from there. All down there. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, going back to Birkenhead, yeah. I'm just reading your first volume of autobiography at yeah. my mother's name. I was only supposed to do one, you know. And it just, it won't, you just had too much. I did and it said 180,000. What the hell? What am I going to do? The only ones are 90. So that, that's how it became this, like, longer than Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, I was, you know, I was thinking, as I've been reading it, I was thinking back to what Birkenhead was like. Did you realise you were gay before it had become legal? Were you aware of it as being something bad and something forbidden that, you know? Um, well, you see, there were no sort of... Role models, I mean, on the telly, you know, you had, um, I'm trying to think who you had. They were always seen as that like, weak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you the know, sissies. Sissies, yeah. You know, so you'd have Charles Hawtrey and Kenneth Williams all dragged up in a department store in a carry-on film, you know, and they're always, oh, you know, and all this business. And then later on in life, you know, there was Larry Grayson, who I loved, by the way, I thought was really funny. But again, he was essentially very, very camp and, mm. oh, and all, and sexless, really. That was the other thing about them so th these characters so they sort of really stood out from everybody else you know yeah. they really did and the word gay was never mentioned no but was it not um queer when i was talking to ian mckellen a few weeks ago he was saying in those days the word when you ever heard it said it was queer and it was as an insult well my mother used to say i remember there were two women and looking back now one of them was quite hearty she always wore a shirt and tight and cropped hair and the <laughs> other one was quite feminine and they, they used to go in henshaws our news agents i mean mother would be looking at them with giving them the one eye and she'd come out and she'd say to me and she used to use the voice she used for cancer she'd say see those two women i'd say yeah she'd go then a pen blues. And I'd say, well, aren't they? <laughs> so I always thought a lesbian was called a hmm <laughs> for years and years and years. And that's what she used to say, you know. But uh, So she called uh, les gay women fruits. You but know queers what? was um, or a, uh, a Nancy, a yeah. Nancy boy, yeah. you know, that was it, or Mary Ann. But what was, right, so you were really close to your mum, you really loved your mum, and when she says things like, when she said things like that about people you may or may not have sensed were like you, what was going on in your head at well, the time? Well, at the time, I wasn't aware I was gay, you know. I was sort of, I was quite immature as a kid, really, when I think about it. It was in a world of my own, you know. It was, in, it was sort of a world that were Doctor Who and the Avengers existed and not much else yeah. <laughs> outside of that. So sex wasn't... I remember at school, when we went to secondary school, we used to have necking sessions in the park to practice kissing. Yeah, I used to do that with yeah, girls. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> there'd be me and all these lads necking away on... And I remember some lad, he was older than me, saying, pull your hood up on your duffel coat. <laughs> so to anyone going past, I think you're a girl. <laughs> oh, I thought, you, I thought you were about necking girls. No, necking make... lads. So we practised, you know, so when it came to necking girls, we knew what to do, so we didn't seem like... But we didn't see that as being gay. But did you, did, were you aware of enjoying that in a Well, we both way? did. This was it. You know, they'd say, so you're a good kisser, you know, and all this and all this caper. But it wasn't, so, looking back at it, it was, it was sort of, um, it, it was an non-judgmental atmosphere, you know. Yeah, but, but you know what? There's one passage in your book where you talk about um, that rough woman who lived next door saying something like, saying to your mum, oh, and your son's one of them or something, and, um, you know, does the limp wrist... You know, he's going to grow up to be one of them. And probably saw me dancing in the garden. Because you know, <laughs> I go out and not a stitch on me. You know, like six or seven. And off I'd go. Dancing <laughs> like, around the garden. Yeah, dancing around the garden. My mother, get in here, you. Cover yourself up. You know, oh, we had a collie at the time and it, it was an old Irish sheepdog. So I'd go down the path and just have vests and underpants on me about three or four. And this thing would bring me back. But it used to manage to pull me drawers and vest off in the process. So it was like permanently not a stitch on me. And the same <laughs> when I used to go to Ireland every summer, you know, you'd run around no shoes on. But there were, there was always, talk, there were lots of bachelors, I remember now in retrospect in Ireland, lots of single men. It was just never discussed. It was they never had discussed. No, you know, no, not at all. And now I think, remember so and so down the road, you know, and they'd be, or they'd be called, he's, he's the seventh son of the seventh son. So he had some sort of mystic power. So therefore, it was almost on a level with the priesthood. Yeah, and yeah. if you were gay in Ireland then, um, you had a vocation and you became a Christian brother or yeah. a priest. 
You know, it's interesting because Ian McCallum was talking about all this, how when he was growing up, just nobody mentioned it. It wasn't so much that there weren't any role models. You didn't see any gay no, people anywhere. No, not at all. But the interesting thing is, so by the time I was growing up, after legalisation in the 80s, when there was greater visibility, there suddenly was a wave of homophobia. Yeah. Because people... Because then homophobia and homophobic comments from kids at school and even teachers at school was quite normal. Yeah, too right it was, you know. You know. Was, yeah, that, that, that was. I can't remember anyone gay when I was a kid. Nobody. Speaking about your mum and speaking about that period, I couldn't help thinking when I, when I read this book or when I've been reading it that... Um, you describe this really strong, close relationship with your mum and how you used to admire her. And she was your figure for empathy when you were growing up. Yeah. And it, you know, it did cross my mind that one of the things they always used to say about gay people was that people turned gay because of domineering mothers. I and don't o- believe that. Well, no, so. uh, neither do I. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious, that's obviously yeah. bollocks. But at the same time, I thought, I wonder if, do you think you, part of the reason you were so close to your mum is because of your gayness and she was an empathy figure or what do you think was that going because on? Because she was funny and she was unpredictable. <laughs> I mean, Callan Ann Duffy described her look. She said, she said she was part Grimm's fairy tales and part Dickens. You know, she'd <laughs> take you around the garden and she'd go, see that foxglove? And I'd say, yeah, she'd kill you like that. But she'd say it with pride, digitalis purpurea. She'd say, um, stops the heart, the sleep and death. And it was like living with the Wicked Queen. And then she, so I, I, I gleaned all this knowledge about history, everything from her. She was, a, she was, she was well, she should really have gone to university, but she couldn't because when she finished school, she was put into domestic service at 14. It, you know, it's all yeah, in the book, yeah. so she didn't get a chance. So she devoured books and it was because of her. I'm the same. You know, I was in the library like twice a week. I was like that. Yeah. But, what, but do you not think there's anything in the reason, anything in why you would look to your mum as an empathy figure and somebody to aspire to rather than your dad? Well, no, I did, my dad as well, because when my dad had a few scoops in him, you know, he was hilarious, and he'd come, he'd get the accordion, my mother would be sitting there knitting, you know, raising her eyes to heaven, and he'd start singing, just Marley and me, and my mother would go, oh, Jesus. And he was a great source of it, party giver, my dad, he was very, very sociable. You know, he could, he could charm the bloody birds off the trees. So why does he not get a look in in the book then? Because she became the dominant figure when I was writing the book, really, me mum. He does later on, me dad, he features very heavily, you know, and you get to see the other side of him. But for, mo- for the most part, it, was, it turned out to be not a book about me, but about a book about me mum and her two sisters, really. And that's why I called it at my mother's knee and other low joints, because then we move on to, like, the gay scene, which was 1972 when I first went to a gay bar. Well, can I just say, I want to come back to that, because I really want to know about the first time you went to a gay bar. I hated it. Oh, really? I hated it, Oh, well, let's do it now, then. Tell us what happened. I'd gone to the CHE. I was a founder member. Fantastic. And it was a, a student ran it in Upper Parliament Street, which was quite a rough area. Well, the prosies used to hang out, as we called them. <laughs> Didn't say hookers in those days. No, I never say hooker now. I either say prosy or brass. I don't like work. <laughs> Sex worker, I hate that. You don't work in a fucking office. You know what I mean? You're giving them shanks for money. So let's not, not, let's not dilute it and call it sex worker. <laughs> Good old fashioned brass, you can't beat them. You know what so I mean? So these prosies were in a gay bar. No, this is so this was um, where the, where he lived. So I, I go off to the CHE meeting thinking I'm going to a bacchanalian orgy. That this is going to be fabulous. But we didn't. We all sat around drinking tea, discussing uh, an out into Morecambe. And it was the first really big gay rally, I'd say. I went on it. And it was held in Morecambe. And um, I went a few times. But while I was there, I met what I thought was an ambulance driver who turned out to be a copper. <laughs> so he took me. I persecuted. He didn't want me to go to a gay bar because he knew what would happen as soon as I got in there. It'd be like a kid in a candy shop. And is that what happened? Not at first, no. I was horrified. Because the first gay bar I went to was the Bears Paw. God, long gone now. And... Um, it was still knock on the door, you know, and, like, the hatch opens. Yeah. Through your R. And, of course, Dennis, the manager, as soon as we walked in, you know, ring on every finger. And I'm, dear. <laughs> and and I, I'm eyed up, you know, this sort of pretty 17-year-old. And uh, next thing, I go down into the bar and I went, <gasps> there's men dancing together. It's terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> I was horrified. Yeah, can I just say, right, so we've started a new series in Attitude called Stepping Out. Yeah. We always used to do this feature, which was everybody's coming out stories. Yeah. And I said, 
right, obviously that's a really big um, rite of passage for gay men. Yeah. But also equally terrifying and emotionally intense is the first night you go on the gay scene. Yeah. And that is part of the coming out process. But there's the excitement, there's the terror, there's the kind of being turned on, there's everything all together. I just thought it was so sleazy beyond belief. I thought, I do not want to enter this lifestyle. I'm sorry. And, you know, it's sort of men kissing on the dance floor. Oh, my God, sitting there. And I remember these two queens, poker thin, faces like whippets, plucked eyebrows, you know, all the hair teased up. One of them had a T-shirt on that said, girl, going back. And they both had girls' names. Come on, Penny. And you were horrified. I was jeez, I couldn't right. believe it. Right, so here's the thing then. If you grew up and nobody said horrible things about gays, yeah. why were you so horrified? Because what? it was like, it was another world, you know what I mean? And it felt very predatory as well, that was the other thing. And the sort of, the rules then were, if somebody came up and said to you, would you like a drink? That meant you were going home with them. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, or also, even if you accepted a dance, that was almost 98% you were. So, of course... I was sort of stood there and this fellow says, do you want to dance? <laughs> so before I could even object, I'm hauled onto the dance floor. So I had about six queuing at the end of the night and this Steve's go, what the hell have you been doing? I said, nothing. And I thought, this is, I don't like this this place at all. It's such a really dramatic oh, journey awful. for gay men to yeah. go through. Yeah. Um, you know, you start to be aware of your desires. When I was growing up, I thought my sexual desires would get me killed because we thought sex meant AIDS, yeah. you know, meant yeah. death. And they, But you can't suppress them. Yeah. You go to these places, it's all going on. You're horrified, you're repulsed. But you know it's you, you know you've got to be pulled in. But I, we had a saving Trump card, didn't we? I made a friend who was a customs officer, Tony, smashing. He's, he's gone now, Tony, oh. God bless him. Liverpool was a thriving port. Now, a thriving port means thriving sailors. Yeah. So, of course, we, we sort of, we go to the gay pub, which was Paco's and the Lisbon, and, and there was a wonderful pub on the dock road called the Dominion. That would have put my mother in hospital because it was full of prozies, full of toughest queens you've ever met behind the bar and heaving with sailors. So of course, oh my we, God, it sounds brilliant. Oh, it I want to go now. So we were always on ships. So you'd have to do the walk of shame in the morning past the dockers with a carton <laughs> of fags under your arm. You know, I've gone and it will be wolf whistling. The look on your face, it seems like, you know, it was a joyous experience. Fabulous. Yeah, but, you were, you know, you say you loved your mum and your childhood and your youth was very happy, but you'd go home and have to keep it quiet. But I could hardly was... go home and say to me, Mother, I've just been through the entire crew of the good ship out of your neck, <laughs> could I? I? She'd have a stroke, you know what I mean? <laughs> but what I mean is, what I mean is you've got two things going on. There's, you, the, there's the excitement and the brilliance of doing it, but also... Having to keep it quiet makes you think. Well, no, it wasn't shameful. keeping it quiet. No, I and mean, it wasn't shameful. It was having a secret. You know what I mean? Oh, so it was. Oh, yeah, it was like you know, very exciting. You know, it was a, it was sort of a, a subversive nightlife you had. So in the day, you were the, the height of respectability. You know, working in the civil service. Come nightfall, you were Sadie Thompson down the Liverpool <laughs> docks. You know, it was uh, glorious. So no, there was never any angst and no, no sort of, you know, oh, I wish I could tell everybody. Because I was in the clubs. And what used to make me laugh was if you went in the gay bars then with a gang of sailors, you were instantly branded as a tart, as, as Rahua. <laughs> and did you just um, accept that label? Oh, completely. <laughs> so I'd, I'd be surrounded by like nine gorgeous yanks and I'd say to them, don't touch any of these maidies in here. You keep them all for yourself. Yeah, and we go down there and these queens would be salivating and hating me. You know, me and Tony were, a, were branded as a right pair of scrubbers. That's where Lily came from. Because uh, I was working in the end behind the bar in the baseball and um, all the sailors used to come in and a, a gang of Chinese came in one night and if you went on a Chinese ship, it certainly wasn't for sex. That was not on the cards on either party. It oh, was, really? No, no. It was for the booze and the food because by God they could throw a party. So they'd say, we're having a party. So off I went to this Chinese ship, best meal ever, booze flowing, fucking hoot. They were singing in Chinese and everything. It was glorious in the galley. And then, of course, I go into work the next night and there was a very sardonic barman called Brian. And he said, oh, here she is, Shanghai Lily. <laughs> oh, that's where it came from. <laughs> and that's from. where it came from. So it stuck. Uh -huh. I was known as Shanghai Lil. So from somebody who said, I will never have a girl's name, ever. You know, when I first went in, 
a year later, I was known universally as Shanghai Lil. It's such a massive journey, isn't it? That, yeah. that you've so you but it's go in a from, short time. You go. Yeah. yeah. So what yeah. you're saying is, what you've said to me in the last five minutes is, you didn't really know about gay people, and then you said at 17, you were so comfortable with how gay you were and so angry about it, you're going on political marches. Yeah. And then you're getting a girl's name a few years after, a yeah. year after yeah. thinking that was repulsive. Yeah. So much going on emotionally, isn't Well, I there? thought, fuck it, I'll go with the flow. You know what I mean? I'm having <laughs> such a good time. Because it. Well, I say so that I like younger friends, I tell them and they go, oh God, I wish I'd have been around then. I said, it's so boring now. So, fuck, you take your fucking chemicals you got off the internet and you go off to somebody's house and clap oh, them no, no. and have a sex party. I said, oh, God, one, it's too incestuous. You're all passed around like a bloody bowl of crisps at a party. I said, and it's so fucking boring. I said, the thriller going on a huge liner, you know what I mean, at two o'clock in the morning. But the, and you look up the gangplank and there's all these sailors whistling and hooting, you think... <laughs> Here we go. Fucking good night tonight. But also, I met you met lovely people. You know, I remember yeah. there were loads of Iranians we were very friendly with, and we'd show them around the city. I used, I took one of them home. Razor, his name was. I what met my mother. Oh, she cooked him because a lot of our family were merchant navy. You see, so sailors were very, very welcome. You know what I mean? It was. But your mum didn't know you chagged him. No. And I said, Mother, this is Razor. He's a sailor from. Hello, love. Oh, sit yourself down. And I remember her saying, I haven't got any rice. I said, At least anything. <laughs> she said, We don't do. I haven't got any rice. So I've got rice, but it's for rice pudding. And I don't think you'd like that. I know. And this, I'm like, you know, and you think, Mother, just shut up, will you? You know what? It's, it's also fascinating because so many gay men growing up at the time felt cut off from the world, felt they were the only one, felt they were festering in a backwater and they just needed to get out to a city because you grew up right next to Liverpool you basically had this glimpse onto you know open doors onto the whole world it's fabulous and all these yeah. you know it seems yeah. like an amazing experience yeah. yeah and you'd have you know you'd have like flings where you'd fall in love you know there'd be a ship in for a month and then you'd fall in love and you'd be <gasps> and then two days later you're on another ship or somebody you've met in the club you know what I mean it was very it was quite promiscuous uh, when I think about it. And there were prostitutes who actually lived on the ships. So they'd go from one ship to another with their children. And oh, that was quite God. common. And they all had nicknames, you know, like Gangplank Annie and all this business. <laughs> and they, they were great. Hello, lads. And they'd be in the cabin breastfeeding the baby, you know, and they'd have the proud father. Who, yeah, that was quite common. And what about... There's um, a whole subculture on the docks, you know, it was fascinating. And what about rent boys? Did you get male prostitutes? Or... I don't ever recall any in Liverpool. I remember hearing tales of there being rent boys down the pier head, you know what I mean? But I, but... I suppose if there were people like you, happy to... Um... <laughs> a lousy free fuck, <laughs> as they say in the war, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, so no, I don't ever recall rents. So actually, so what you're describing is you went from a non-judgmental childhood where you weren't made to feel bad about no. being different no. once you started to recognise it. And then you suddenly had this blossoming once you got used to it, once you got over your own kind of initial repulsion. It was just this blossoming. Well, after the initial shock of it, you know, it was like... Well, imagine seeing a shark for the first time, you know what I mean, if you're a goldfish. <laughs> you go, what the hell? And then you're in a tank full of them. And you think, oh, my God, and some of these sharks have got wigs and makeup on and, and stuff like that. It's sort of, and then, I, I, well, actually, that was it. After that first night, I knew what to expect. I remember going on a Saturday then, thinking, well, this is fabulous. And just, you know, being a right old, like, tease and hoody, you know, and enjoying myself. But around the same time, I know that the tabloids always make a lot of this, but you had a brief affair with a woman and had Oh, a I daughter. used to have lots of girlfriends. This so, was the thing, you see. I liked women as well. And I decided to myself, I remember weighing it up. This is the cynicism of a, a teenager. Well, if I go out with a girl, I have to pay with her. But if I go out with a fella, he pays for me. So bye-bye, ladies. <laughs> and so that's you, what turned me gay. So you, you... <laughs> <laughs> it was purely venal. <laughs> So, so you did, did you identify as bisexual? No. So I just like dipping my toe in both ponds. That's how I saw it. So was, um, do you think... I didn't put names on anything, you yeah. know what I mean? So I didn't say, I don't, did we say gay then? Yes, we did, yeah, gay. But that's a word I never liked because gay sounded like you were skipping through a meadow, you know, with two pieces of shift on going, <laughs> woo! That's gay. And it's always confused me why the colours of... 
pink, of course, I understand from the concentration camps and the yeah, Nazis. Yeah, yeah. But lavender and rainbows? <laughs> what the fuck? Why isn't it jet black with a streak <laughs> of lightning through it? You know what I mean? So <laughs> but, you know, for me, because I, I never thought I was bisexual. Or I never was attracted to girls. So you see how I was? Terrible. Oh, that's interesting, you know, because yeah. a lot of people, a lot of gay men would assume that by having an affair with a woman and having a daughter, or having affairs with several women, you were trying to force yourself to be normal. No, not at all. There I was, was none having... of that at all. So it'd be a girl on the Thursday and, and a fella on the Friday. Maybe then a three up on the Saturday, you know, you never knew, you know what I mean? It was all very... And it was a, it was a strange time, really, when I think about it, because, yeah, we didn't put labels on, on anything. We didn't say, oh, he's... You'd never hear him say he's bi. He liked women and he liked fellas. You know what I mean? And it's sort of, it, it, it was almost seen as an added attraction if you liked women. But at what stage did you stop liking women or start to think you were completely gay? I think, um, I was, yeah, about 18, 19. Yeah, I thought that, um, yeah, this is it. When you started to meet all the sailors. I thought, I, thought, I, thought, I, thought, I think I prefer fellas. <laughs> so it's a lot easier as well with fellas. Well, actually, it's not. Because if you get, like me and Murphy, I was with for 25 years, you, what you get are two men vying for the position of top dog for 25 years. So it was, it was never harmonious relationship, you know what I mean? There was always fights and arguments and, like, fisticuffs. And people get, I remember us having a punch up in the green room of the BBC and Rosemary, the producer, saying, oh, this is nothing. Shit, it goes on all the time between the <laughs> pair of them. Shit, he kicked him out of his Winnebago the other day. And we had that kind, it was quite, you know, it was quite a fiery relationship. But on the whole, you found it easier to be with men than... Um... Well, I preferred men, yeah. 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 You know, I think, I think you experiment as a youth, you know what I mean? And it's nothing to do with sort of um, hiding behind women and wanting to be accepted. It's got nothing to do, it wasn't, certainly wasn't for me. It was a genuine curiosity. Our aim at school was to shag girls. That's all, all yeah. we aim for. Look, the O-levels, that's all. We're like dogs on heat. It was terrible. Yeah. I think basically what it is, it became more than the sex. It was when a sort of um, yeah. um, felt for a fella. You know yeah. what I mean? Actually, it wasn't just it wasn't just quick, you know, like one night standing off. It's when you say, well, yeah, and then you start going to like, instead of just meeting in clubs, getting pissed, going home, having it off, you go to the pictures, which I think, mm, I don't know. And it's, I had to sort of gradually thaw towards things like that, going for meals and stuff like that. Oh, see, so that's interesting because yeah. we can all talk about how we feel when we first become aware of our sexual desires, but when we first become aware of our emotions oh, it's towards dreadful. Them, it's yeah. an even bigger thing, isn't oh, it? Oh, huge, terrible. You suddenly start, you know, you start to think, God, I'm... I'm listening to love songs, you know, yeah. shit like that, and things would move you, and you couldn't wait to see them, and it wasn't about the sex. Well, it was about the sex, but it was more than that. Yeah. It becomes far more than that. So that's probably when you first fall in love. That's when it really hits home that you're different, doesn't it? Because the sex... Well, then you can't express it, you know. You can't yeah. go announce that you see that. Going on ships with sailors, nothing. But you can make a joke out of it. It's almost like a kind of comedy routine, yeah. isn't it? And then it's it wasn't called your partner or anything. It was called your affair. <laughs> they always used to say, he's got an affair. You know, or is that your affair? You know, if you, you were with somebody. <laughs> so who was the first man that you fell in love with I then? I can't remember. <laughs> isn't that terrible? I should sing about that song, My Old Flame. I can't even think of his name. I bet it seemed like such a big thing at the time. Probably. And all these years later... But then I did can't... a lot of that, you know what I mean? Over, over the years, in and out, in and out. It was sort of part of... I think it, was, it became part of it. So have these huge, passionate relationships that had lasted a week. And somebody We've else all been come, there, darling. Somebody else come along, you know, they'd bugger <laughs> off or you'd bugger off one of the two, but it was no hard feelings. And what about Lily? When did she come around then? Because, you know, you've said she was... You've said where the name came from, and I know you've written in the past about how um, she was based on your mum and your auntie Chris and those kind of strong northern women not to look at you know what i mean yeah. I, I mean it's weird my nephew came to see me in the panto you know and i was the stepmother then not lily and he said god you're so like auntie chrissy i said how do you mean such your mannerisms and oh the, in that case i want to meet your auntie yeah, chrissy because i loved you in that panto and the looks you know and all <laughs> that and like oh you know all this everything was like a question and um when did i first start doing lily well we first started we got an act together didn't we first 
a double act, a mime act. It's called lip syncing now. It's very fashionable, isn't it? That makes me bloody laugh. It really does. So do you watch RuPaul's Drag Race? No, I don't. Do you not? Oh, no, I love it. No, not at all. No. So you look at RuPaul's Drag Race now, it's really popular, but drag can't have been mainstream and popular then. It must have been at a completely different place. Well, it was. I mean, there was a, a huge drag boom in the 60s. I mean, I was only, what, five in the 1960s, so I don't remember any of that. But um, where every, basically every pub, because of Danny LaRue, I think it was, had oh. a drag act on. And I remember, I remember one act being advertised and underneath whatever they were called, it said, with cleavage. <laughs> so the aim of the game was to look like a woman, you know yeah. what I mean? So the more you look like a woman, the better. So the, how, did you, how did you go from going in your first gay bar and being repulsed to a few years later wanting to be a drag queen? I don't know, but because I thought these were fabulous creatures and if I thought, what a wonderful lifetime. You get up and you mime to records, you know what I mean, and all this, and it's good money and all this caper. Did you ever, as Lily in drag, go back to Liverpool and get your mum to come and watch or your auntie? Well, she died when oh. I'd started doing Lily. And did you, um, so your mum never saw you in drag, but did you get to come out to your mum then before she died? I remember saying to her once, she was looking for a birdcage in, in the cupboard under the stairs. Christ knows why, Joey the budgie died years ago. And I said, I think I'm gay, mum. And she gave me arse and roared laughing and that was it. <laughs> so you didn't have a whole... I could have come into to me mother and said, mother, um, I'm, uh, I'm considering becoming a magician on top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And she just said, ah, oh, you love... It was that sort of, it was odd, you know what I mean? Yeah. The only thing my mother was concerned about was getting a job with a pension. That was it. And so when I was, you know, I joined the civil service, I wanted to go in the Ministry of Defence because of the Avengers, of course. So I thought I'd be a spy with a Lotus Europa and a fabulous flat in London. I ended up in the Social Security. Do you ever think what your mum would have made of Lily? Um, she, I think she, at first she'd have been quite shocked. She'd go, oh, my God. And then she'd have thought... And then she'd have loved it, yeah. I hope you're enjoying my chat with Paul O'Grady on this, the second Attitude Heroes podcast. Paul grew up in fascinating times. As you heard, he made me shriek like a schoolgirl when he was reminiscing about growing up as a gay man near a large port city surrounded by all those sailors. But there were hard times to come. In a minute, he'll tell us how the AIDS epidemic affected him and people he loved throughout the 1980s. And if you're young enough not to have lived through that, I'd really urge you to keep listening, as it's a really important part of our shared history, and it's shaped who we are as a community today. All my friends died. You know, and you go, oh, not you and all. And, like, really attractive young men, you know, tends like emaciated, gibbering idiots. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. In hospital wards with the parents, they're not able to cope, didn't even know he was gay. Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at www.great.gov.uk. Just before we return to Paul, a quick reminder to subscribe to this series on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's also a big help if you tell your friends, rate it or review it. Either way, thank you for your support. 
I'm still fascinated in this period when you were going around the gay bars playing Lily because, you know, I've said before that um, when, you know, gay men are one of the only minority groups in this country who don't grow up with parents from the same minority group and so few of us get handed down stories um, about what it used to be like to be gay. And it bothers me that so few younger gay men now know so little about the horrors of um, that time, the persecution, the raids, the AIDS crisis. And I know we can kind of joke about what fun it was, but there was so much intense shit going on no, as well. it was shocking. I mean, it didn't seem shocking at the time, funny enough. Because it was just normalised. Well, yeah, exactly. We accepted it and got on with it and dealt with it. I mean, I used to do shows on the wards with the driller frequently. We did that. We used to, I used to, you know those bottles you pay in? Yeah. I, well, I used to swill them out and I put red wine in one and white in the other. <laughs> plonk, them on the, plonk them on a trolley and be full drag as a nurse and go down the wards, you know, and say, Any, what do you want, red and white? You know, at Christmas and all this, and we'd always do shows at St Mary's, the old Westminster Hospital, which is luxury flats and apartments now. But they were the AIDS wards. And that was at the time. I remember the first person I visited was a young lad who I was pally with in the Vauxhall. He was a design student and he was very young. And um, he was in St. Mary. No, not St. Mary's, the Middlesex. And it was all the yellow tape. And they said, you have to put a gown on and a mask. And I said, no, bugger off. And I went in and his mum was there. Oh, God, it was dreadful. I'll never forget it because his mother couldn't understand. He was like 19, this kid. And he said to me, I've only been with one fella, Lil. And I just thought, it's so fucking unfair. And they weren't actually showing them a lot of sympathy on the wards then. You know, it was sort of... Because they didn't know what it was. They were highly suspicious. They didn't know whether it was contagious. Yeah, frightened for themselves as well. So everything you were meant to... And I remember doing a show on the wards at the St Mary's and there was a fella, a big handsome fella, who used to go to the market tavern. It was one of me, Murphy used to call me drinking cronies, who I'd always sit in the bar and have a couple of pints and a whiskey with and chew the cud. We had a necking session once on New Year's <laughs> Eve, but that's as far as it went, because we were better friends than lovers, you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean, I've got a few of those. And he was in the ward, and he was emaciated, like a concentration camp victim. And I says, anything you want, so I sat in the bed, and he said, I'd kill for a fag. So I let a ciggy smoked it and passed it to him. And he took a few drags and he said, I was coughing his gossip. He said, I can't finish that, you finish it. And I remember them all, there was a doctor and nurses, Anadrella stood there and they all went, because <gasps> they took the fag off him and smoked it. So, and I, if I knew even then, it, you weren't going to get it off a cigarette or a toilet seat or any of this bollocks. But were you not, but I mean, what was going through your head when you saw the horrors of what it did to people? You must have been frightened of that happening to you. Well, I was, you know, we were all sitting on a time bomb. You know, and every day, the dressing room and the Vauxhall became like the confessional because somebody would come in to me and say, can I have a word with you? Because they found it easier to talk to a stranger. Because uh, yeah. I asked people, I said, well, why would you tell me? I never told you, I told Lily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they could come in to Lily and say, you know, they'd come in and say to me, um, do you think that's a good deal for 25 quid? You know, they'd have a lump of dope or something. <laughs> and I'd say, well, I'd unwrap it first in case it's wood. <laughs> uh, or they'd come in and say, I'm in court tomorrow, Lil. What do you think I'll get? And I'll say, you'll get a bender. You know, a suspended <laughs> sentence. So it became the... So all of a sudden people were coming in and saying, can I have a word with you? But that must have been... I mean, I know that you obviously weren't it going through you the horrors of it yourself, but it must have been hard for you in terms of a burden on... Your well, shoulders. I was lucky because I'd been, don't forget, I'd worked in social services for years. So I was sort of well used to trauma and things like that. I was no sort of wallflower who had not seen. I mean, don't, you're looking at somebody who has found a decomposed baby in a smackhead's cot. Yeah. You know, and stuff like that. An old woman burned to death because she had a stroke and fell over the gas stove. So how did seeing Ed's patients on a oh, ward compare to that? Me, especially that... close friends because, and you, they had what was called the luck. That, yeah. That's how it was termed then, in the eyes, big eyes, and the teeth started to get bigger. And you'd say, you know, you'd know. And the, and the bravery of, of these men, where they'd um, try and make light of it. Oh, I'm fine, you know. And then they'd crack a little bit and have a word with you, you know, and say, well, I'm not too good. And then a week later, they'd be in hospital. A week later, they'd be dead. It was that quick in the early days. And did you crack? No. And this is when Adrella was dying, because he came down to me to stay with me for a week. He said to me, funny enough, he said, how did you cope? He said, because 
he said, I couldn't. He said, I couldn't off. He said, but you, because it was endless. I was endless hospital visiting, endless sorting out flats, endless funerals, going to charities, you know, which at, at the time there were very few, you know, so you had to really beg yeah. for like a little fridge for medication or something. So you've got all, you see, you've got not just the physical, medical um, horrors that are going on, but you've got the stigma, the kind of well, rejection people's... from their families. You've got so yeah. much stuff. Well, you, and this is why I did the documentary about the Salvation Army, because they were the only organisation I can remember helping. So you'd have these young officers on the ward sat with dying men who were quite angry, you know, like letting it all out on these young officers who just took it. They'd pay for funerals, they'd organise funerals, they'd console parents, they'd counsel people. They were incredible. And they, um, the other thing that impressed me, they were non-judgmental. Not at all, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? And I never forgot them for that. They were, and same as the nuns in the Mildmay Hospice, they were all these Irish nuns, you know. They were really were angels, them and the Salvation Army officers. And what do you think was going on in your psyche to, or your emotional makeup to mean that you didn't crack and that you were able to be so strong and help? Because so many you can't people? crack, you know, at a time like that. Somebody has to be the carer and somebody has to be strong. So you really have to gauge your loins, you know what I mean, and not like any chinks in your armour appear, you know, which isn't good for good for you in the well, long no, term. Well, no, it's interesting because you used the word trauma before, and do you yeah. do you look back on those years and think of it as a trauma? It's horrific. Well, all your friends, all my friends died. You know, and you go, oh, well, not you and all. You know what I mean? It was just a... Tra- and, like, really attractive young men, you know, tends like emaciated, gibbering idiots in hospital wards with the parents there, not able to cope, didn't even know he was gay. Do you think, as a community, gay people have kind of addressed the trauma that we went through enough? Do you think we've ever kind of... Do you know what I mean? Dealt with it because it's... no, because I'll tell you something else. And all it wasn't all Munchkinland, you know, on the gay scene either. You know, you're going with a friend who was you could see was visibly ill, and they'd shy away. Yeah, that happened quite a lot. You know, I remember going in with a friend of mine, Chrissy, who was in a wheelie, and I says, "Any chance we can have that seat in the end?" No. You know, it was quite hostile. They didn't want. It was almost like I didn't want to know. But is that fear about themselves? Because everybody was so. Probably, and it was so commonplace, I think people were bored with it. People who weren't, you know, there was charities in every pub every night. We did, God, I was doing like four to five benefits in, a week in various pubs to raise funds for things like lambskin covers, you know, to put on a mattress or a kettle or a microwave or a telly. But Because there was nothing, you know, nothing at all. It's funny, isn't it? Because when you think about it now, AIDS pervaded every aspect of the gay experience in those days. Every straight person who read about gays, they thought gays died of AIDS. Whenever you read about it in the papers, when gays used to... You know, I remember coming out to my parents and and thinking they'd be frightened that I'd catch AIDS and die. And I remember when I was starting to become aware of, as I said before, of my sexual desires, I thought I would catch AIDS and die because that's what you just thought as a gay person. Oh, no, we didn't think that we... Well, we were all grown up, you know what I mean? Yeah. We've been at it for years and seen all sorts going on. And all of a sudden, this terrible... Because up till then, it was... It changed the scene completely. It, it brought a dark cloud over it. It really did. I mean, for instance, nobody go near an American. You know, don't touch him, he's a yank. You know, he's probably got AIDS. So just having an American ac- ac- accent stigmatised you. Yeah. Because there were all rumours flying. Nobody knew where it came from. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew if it was treatable. So, of course, when you're in that situation, fear is rife. Yeah. Which, which it was. And everybody's becoming infected without knowing how Well, this or is why. it. Nobody knowing how or why or whatever. You know, people who had long-term partners all of a sudden were going down like flies. See, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about this. And I do think it's really important for younger people to hear about it. But it strikes me that so few plays and books and films have been made about this time. And I'm wondering whether, you know, because it's so emotionally um, intense, you think it would be great material for drama. And I wonder whether the mainstream society wasn't ready to hear it or whether when gay people had come out of this trauma, you just wanted to put it behind you. I think that's probably the case, you know, like... um... Because I'm always being asked about it, you know what I mean, always. And I think I don't mind talking about it at all. I think people should know what it was like. But at the same time, I'm not living in the past. I'm remembering it 
And then that's it. I've moved on. We've all got to move on. And I think the younger generation now, they see it as a sort of older person's uh, problem, not theirs. And when you hear about these, you know, pos parties, pos me up and all this. Oh, I know. How I does that make you feel? It makes me through? angry. Yeah. Really angry. You know, because what we fought for, really, you know, they're just thrown back in our faces. Well, what about when you read about... I'd the... slap them around a gob if I was there. If some... really? Yeah, oh, no problem. I'd get hold of them by the throat and smack them right around the mouth. So if there's any, you know... I'd say you're pissing on the graves of all my friends with that attitude. But what about their own emotional struggles with addiction and psychological struggles? You see, I, I read um, Matthew's book. Matthew Todd, yeah, it's brilliant, Yeah, it's it? a smashing book. Straight but, jacket. But it's not a gay scene I, I, I can relate to. Because it's all about drug dependency, you know, and, and a sort of um, body image and all yeah. that. Uh, and it, it was, I was really, as I said, I was really lucky, you know, growing up the time I did. So it was a time really of awakening for everybody. Yeah. And all of a sudden people who had been in the closet were coming out, albeit they were only coming out on the gay scene. They weren't coming out in the private lives, but that's their business. And it's before AIDS. So and before AIDS. So it was, my God, it was like going to a glorious picnic. You know what I mean? And that's how it went. And then all of a sudden the spectre of AIDS came along and changed everything completely. But you all bonded together through persecution yeah. and through the AIDS crisis. Oh, God, the raids and the Vauxhall. They all come in with bloody rubber gloves on. I said, oh, yeah. Christ, we've got help with the washing up. Yeah, all the police. Well, because they thought they were going to be infected with AIDS. Yeah, 36 of them came barging in the alehouse. They did a documentary, the BBC, Heart of the Massa, about it. It was outrageous. Is that what made you so political? Is that I know you said you went on your first march at 17, but is no, that No, I was always you... really fucking angry, you know what I mean? I, used to, I remember, and I still am, you know, I don't tolerate any shit. I remember going to um, Pride in Amsterdam, oh, God, and on the main stage, forgive me, this is going to sound like I'm as hard as nails, it was all about love. And now we must preach love and we should love each other. And I'm like, lips <laughs> curled, you can hardly see. It's got covered one eye. You know, when dealing with homophobia, you must, like, you know, love them. And no, 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 no. I was walking past the pub just a couple of years ago, gone my way to Radio 2, and some fella outside the pub, city worker with his pint, said, shouted, Heidi, hi. So I said, come out here and fucking say, Heidi, hi. <laughs> and you could see him visibly pale. Put your pint down and come out here. I said, I'll fucking kick your teeth down your throat. You'll be cleaning them up your arse with a toothbrush. And he went, eh. I said, no, I'm fucking tittering. Out here now. And he, like, really backed off. I said, yeah. And I went for him, like, pure lily, verbally. Took him to pieces. Saw all his chinks, his flaws, in, like, ten seconds, sized him up. Picked on him. And his mates were really embarrassed to be with him. It's funny, you know, because yeah. you, you talk about lily and you talk about... Um, you know, straight reactions to her from, like, this guy. Straight men love Lily. Yeah, so th so this what happened? Do you think Do you think Lily went really mainstream with telling your blankety-blank and your big breakfast? Do you think it's no coincidence that this took off as the AIDS hysteria was dying down and people were less frightened of gays? They wouldn't have to put rubber gloves on around them, as you say. Do you know what I mean? No, because... I, 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 I... I've only found this out years later. Straight men loved Lily. From the start? From the start, you know. So it had nothing to do with the AIDS crisis. They're completely separated. So why did she, be, the why did she become The tabloids weren't particularly nice. You know what I mean? You were still a puff in a frock, as they said. Yeah. And you had that shit Kelvin McKenzie, Edison and Son at the time, who, like, I'd nailed to a door myself if I ever saw him. Never, for, never forgive? Never. I don't forgive me. Never. No, never. He's one I'd smack around the mouth if I ever saw him with something. I'd go straight up to him and tell him. I wouldn't hesitate. And if he gave me any lip, I'd put his, I'd, I would, I'd chin him. You know, I sound really violent, don't I? I'm not. <laughs> but I just get uh, so fucking annoyed at ignorance and prejudice. Yeah. And especially when you're in a responsible position of a tabloid newspaper with millions of trashy readers that you're dripping poison into their ear on a daily basis and infecting them with your bias and your prejudice. That's not what journalism's about. No. And that man's a piece of shit. I mean, and I'm being kind calling him that. Isn't it interesting that Lily went mainstream on Blankety Blank and things yeah. literally a few years after people like Kelvin McKenzie were saying such horrible things about gays in tabloid yeah. newspapers? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what was the shit? You don't think... So you don't think it was hysteria around AIDS? No, not day. at all, no. So what do you think straight people just got more used to us being around? They yeah, just... oh, definitely. You know, and it's, um, I, I think sort of the press, all the press really has a lot to answer for. 
because people read it. And now you get a lot of people say, well, it must be true, it was in the paper. And you think, the only thing you can believe in the paper is the date. And even then, you know, that's up for dispute. Isn't it fascinating that actually, you know, talking about Lily taking off and going mainstream, you know, you never toned her down. No, never. Well, I did for telly, I had to. Did you? you? Yeah, God, yeah, you can't be swearing, you know, I'm blankety-blank. Well, swearing, but I remember seeing Lily when I was at university, mid-90s, and I went with a straight friend from Liverpool, and um, it was just so encouraging to me that there were all these straight people, a totally mixed audience, roaring with yeah. laughter oh, I at was. Lily's filth yeah. and kind of uh, smut, and yeah. totally not holding back on the gay stuff and jokes no, about... No, You know. Yeah, not at all. You it's know. amazing that you managed to make her so successful in the mainstream well, I, without... I, I mean, yeah, all right, you had to take out a few swear words, but... You didn't turn down the essence of her, did you? Well, no, she was a a tart, you know what I mean? She was like, she was very working class for the start. And that's, I think that, oh, because I don't think people, uh, telly people think everybody listens to Radio 4 and the working class, hence why Mrs Brown's Boys is so popular. Yeah. Because it appeals to the working classes. And I think, and also, you know, it was a comedy act, Lily. You know what I mean? Everybody knew I was a bloke. Well, actually, no, not everybody did. This is a, this, I used to get letters, you know, like um, off, a lot of them off prisoners in graphic description of what they wanted to do. And I used to think, Christ, OB, he never gets out. You know, some of them from Rampton. And you think, I hope to God he's banged up for life because I've had it. I'm going to be some dirty, big, shaved, dead and things bitch if he ever gets out. So I'd get lots of letters, you know, and there were lots of, loads of straight fellas used to say to me, oh, fucking hell, I'd, uh, so, uh, would you know? <laughs> Did anybody from um, the gay community that you'd been so <laughs> kind of tightly caught up with, and when you start to go mainstream and she has to swear a bit less on blankety blank, did anybody accuse you of selling out? Oh, well, because I sort of wasn't working gay pubs anymore, you got that cry. But, and, you know, and I thought... And I remember sitting in the box hall one night, long before I ever did telly, and thinking, I'm packing this up and going back to a proper job. Because I was bored with it. You know, I was just doing... And also, it's very tiring, up and down the motorway, up and down oh, the motorway, yeah. getting changed in toilets or getting changed in cupboards or the manager's office or the cellar or, you know, bad sound systems, a load of drunks at one o'clock in the morning and, and just sitting in motorway services at three o'clock in the morning with a punk band. <laughs> I used to... I used to catch up with a lot. And we do. I remember one Christmas Eve, we were sat in the motorway services outside Birmingham, me, um, a girl singer, and this punk band. And we all looked, we all had nightclub tans. You know, we were like that ashen face. <laughs> and we were all sitting there. Well. And there was a woman behind the counter, a little old lady, she had a, a paper hat on and a bit of tinsel around it. And they were playing through the Muzak system, you know. Jingle bells, jingle bells. I said, this looks like John Waltz's film, but all sassy. I still had traces of slap on, you know, where I hadn't been able to wash because there was no facilities. I remember saying to Murphy, how long do you think we can carry on doing this? You know, because we cover miles every week and this went on for years and years and years, you know, and, and I thought, actually, at one stage, I thought, I'm going to pack this up. I really am. And Did I'm... you ever think at that stage that this life you've got now would be possible. No. And that it would come out of Lily as she was. No, without... exactly. And it was only when I was uh, convinced to go and do the Edinburgh Festival, and I didn't want to. You know, I really didn't want to do the Edinburgh Festival. You know, three weeks' work every night. Oh, God. But I was quite green. I didn't even know you got reviewed. I just thought it was like another gig, you know. So I went up and I did my act in this cupboard and, of course, got nominated for the Perrier. And there was all this huge excitement and we love Lily. Because you don't get it, you drop like a hot brick. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, on the last week. But lots of offers came out of that. And um, interesting offers as well. Things that, you know, I thought, well, I wouldn't mind doing that. I wouldn't mind doing this. Do you, you know, when you talk about how hard it was to keep slogging it um, through all those gigs, do you think being loved um, as a gay man, being supported in a long-term relationship helped you get through that? Yeah, because, you, you know, you sit in the car chatting. You know what I mean? I, I, I used to hate having to go up. You'd go up north. I used to do Rockies on a Friday in Manchester. Can't remember where I did Saturday. Sunday was always shit, Rockies in Sheffield, and God, did I love them up there. And I used to come back and people would say... Once Rockies and Sheffield, like other acts, say fabulous, fabulous people. 
they go up and down their arse and they come and say, you lying cow. And, and the manager said, you're the only act they like. And I used to love, I used to love working Rockies in Manchester, Flamingo and Blackpool. I used to love that as well. They're all great crowds. Uh, Leeds, you name it. You go up to Scotland, Fire Island. But interestingly, you weren't, so you weren't doing it on your own. You were doing it. As... I used to have Murphy with me all yeah. the time, but occasionally then he'd get sloppy. So I'm not driving you this weekend, so I'd have to get the train. And, you know, you change your pressed and go to Blackpool, find a bed and breakfast. And it was very solitary. It's like doing stand-up on your own, on tour. You know, you'll get to a theatre and you go in the dressing room, there's you, the company manager, the sound guy, and that's your lot. And it's very solitary, and you go back to some awful bloody hotel yeah, yeah. and think, oh, God. You know, I said, did Lily at the time have any idea this life would be possible? No. Did, um, well, what I was going to say was, when you were a little boy or a teenager and starting to go out in gay bars, did you have any idea that you could be in a loving relationship and you might be able to get married one day? No. You know? No, God, no. It's amazing that... how, how things are different, isn't it? Now? Yeah. That you wouldn't yeah. have even been able to imagine it then. No, not at all. I think it's a wonderful thing now that, you know, we can get married. I think it's in- incredible. It just shows you how far we've come on paper. It's still a long way before it's totally acceptable, you know. But, but also, um, and for legal reasons, because going back to the age years again, I saw people who, were, you know, lived together, two guys lived together. Yeah. One would die, the family would move in, chuck him out, take I everything. Know, I know. And that used to break my heart. I thought, because you've done nothing, nothing at all. All you've done is come down on his deathbed and you've swept in the, like vultures and cleaned the place out. Meanwhile, his partner who loved him and cared for him was out in the streets. Yeah, but isn't it brilliant now that families... You know, it used to be the case, didn't it, that gay men, in order to become the people we were meant to be, we had to distance ourselves from our families. Yeah. And, you know, I've loved reading about your family life in the North, Catholic family, because that's what mine was like. And, you know, there were so many gay men, that song, Small Town Boy, we yeah. had to move away to become yeah. who we meant to be. We had to distance ourselves yeah. from our families. Well, you see, I didn't, because it was on my doorstep. So, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I had my mother doing me ironing my shirts. But <laughs> isn't it brilliant So now? I was getting home life, and I was getting <laughs> nightlife as well. I was very lucky, I admit that, you know. I, and me and my mates from those days, who still, there's not many, there's Vera, you know, and a couple of us are still alive, and we talk about it. And there were fabulous times. Yeah. There was no angst. There was no, oh, God, I'm... I mean, the most drug we ever took then was a Pro Plus, you know, and, <laughs> and I'd say, do you think people could tell, can tell we're off our heads? <laughs> you know, on two Pro Plus. That's how green we were. And you went out to cop off, as we called it. You went out for a drink, and the, the icing on the chair and the cake was you copped off at the end of the night. Yeah. So that was it. But shall I tell you what? Um, you you still couldn't share that life of yours with. But your I didn't want mom to. And your yeah, yeah, but shall I tell you what? What I think is brilliant now is that some younger gay men, if they do want to, oh, but they, they can. can. Oh, it's marvelous! Isn't that fantastic? Well, it's like you know, it's sort of we think differently now. Yeah. You know, it's a different generation now. I mean, my parents went through the war and everything, so it was a completely different generation. You know, and don't forget, homosexuality was illegal. Or, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. So, but now, of course, it's not, you know, and it's a whole doorways and avenues have been opened up. I just wish they weren't so fucking boring when you go to a dinner party and they're banging on about the fucking kids and going to the <laughs> garden centre and then you conservatory. And we must leave. We've got to get home for the babysitter. And I remember going to one and said, well, in my day, when you went home for the babysitter, it was to shag it. <laughs> And they're like, oh, really? And it's all this, like, and I think, what's happened? Where's the spice gone? But it's great that if we want to be, we can be boring. See, I don't. I, I don't want to be boring, but I, I love the fact that some gays, if, if they are a bit blander, they don't have to go into this underworld. They can still live with their families, they can have kids. Oh, they God, can, they can live you know, like, if, well, I'm doing this in brackets now, a normal life. Yeah. I never wanted a normal life, ever. I never wanted to go with the herd. I always wanted to be an individual. And any men I've had long-time um, relationships with have always been the same. Yeah. They've always been total low. Like Murphy was a loner and a completely different kettle of fish altogether. And we both hated the same people and hated the same things, which is always a wonderful foundation for a loving relationship. <laughs> no, it is. No man of sex. If you hate the same people, you're bloody laughing. You'll be going down the aisle. And I think, I do think, you know, I've been to so many friends who've had civil ceremonies and got married, and I think it's wonderful for them. And I've had people say to me, 
do you have a sort of wish it was you? And I said, do I? Fuck, I'd need a shotgun in me back before I went. So you don't think you'll marry your partner, Andrew? He's always at me, God help him. When are we getting married? Uh, it's a bit like Nathan and Miss Adelaide. <laughs> and um, I don't know, maybe I will one day. Maybe I'll does. take the plug. You see, for sort of, because also you don't pay inheritance tax, yeah. you know, if you're married. So for me, it would be legal reasons. I've always fought against marriage, you know, and our generation did. We didn't want to conform to a married life. We didn't want to conform to a family life. We wanted to go to London and be free spirits and all live together in a flat and have loads of sex and go clubbing it and drag up and get up and do shows. We wanted to be completely away from what you would class as the norm. We wanted to be the Adams family and we did. You know what I mean? But shall I tell you what, ironically, from putting yourself out there as Lily and being celebrated in the mainstream and then doing things like your tea time show on ITV yeah. and not, not toning down your gayness, you've actually helped make it possible for people to, you know, for so many people to accept gays and therefore for the boring gays to be able to get married. Do you know what I loved in Coronation Street once? One of my favourite characters was Blanche. Do you remember Blanche? I oh, love Deirdre's mum. Yeah. Well, she, there was a rumour going around Ken might be gay. Do you remember that? No. Oh, there was this rumour going around Ken was gay. And Blanche said to Deidre, I was eating my dinner at the time, I nearly choked, and the phone went all night then. Blanche said, um, she said, well, there's nothing wrong with gays. She said, I'd crawl over hot coals for Paul O'Grady. <laughs> and I thought, my God, that, that to me, you know, in Coronation Street, and one of the, like, more sort of feisty characters, one of the tougher characters is admitting... She, she likes gays. Yeah, and you helped change the, I hope so. the yeah. opinions of real-life Blanches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, and it's like now the Salvation Army, this is glorious. This is a, Since the programme, they've now taken in um, a couple, a, 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 a gay couple who are married, and they've made them officers. And it's the first time ever that they've ever acknowledged a gay couple and not only acknowledged them, but permitted them to become full-blown Salvation Army officers and live together. Now That's that, amazing, isn't, isn't it? it? And, and, and this has always been my asset. It's no good sticking that bloody silly Ellen. There was some pastor who said something homophobic. It was, she's also a, a singer or something. She was supposed to go on the show and Ellen's on Twitter. I'm having her on my show. Well, that's not the attitude for me. She should have had her on the show and confronted her and said, and had a debate and said, why do you feel like that? Well, this is the thing. It's only by, by engaging with homophobes exactly. that you can change their You don't minds. get anything by putting your head in the sand. You have to deal with it. And you have to turn people round to your way of thinking. So, finally then, when you have turned so many people round... Well, I hope I have. How do, well, and how I haven't done it either feel? by being a limp-wristed sort no. of, you know, like... Um, Playing up to stereotypes. No, not at all, no. And along the way, you've helped a lot of straight people learn to love and accept gays. Well, I hope so, yeah. I mean, it's not just me about, you know, there's a lot of others as well knocking well, yeah, about but... now. But we're more visible, that's the thing. So do you feel proud of your part in that? No. No, I don't. I wouldn't. It's arrogance that to do that, you know what I mean? I wouldn't even consider that. I've just got on with my job, really, and I've been myself. And, and I've always been straight in interviews. You know, I remember when I first did the big breakfast and all that, we'd gone to Turkey for a holiday and we were sitting outside a cafe. And Vera went, can you see that newspaper over there, the Sunday Mirror? It said, who is Lily Savage's secret daughter? If you know who she is, ring this number. <gasps> yeah. And I thought, that's when I... Uh, that, that seriously worried me because that wasn't about me. And she was yeah. sort of, she, they were banging on her door, the foot in the door. When she'd go jogging in Sefton Park, they'd be running after her. And I thought, she's done nothing. So I really kicked off over that, you know, really kicked off. So, no, I've just got on with it. You know, literally, I've just got on with it, you know, and like, it's, uh, but it's never bothered me. I've been really fortunate. I know lots of gay people and I've known lots of gay men and women who've turned to drink and been really angst and been completely messed up because they're gay. And I always say to them, listen, the only way to sort this terrible knot you've got yourself into is just to accept it yeah. and live your life. And if they don't like it, fuck them. I'm <laughs> sorry. And that is my advice, really. There's no good getting all, you know, and looking for the perfect man and worrying because you've got a spot or you're... you're, you're, you're 
guns, whatever the fuck they call them, aren't big <laughs> enough and your tits aren't, but you haven't got a six pack. Who gives a shit? Because if somebody's going to be so superficial to only like you because of the way you look, then you don't want them in your life. Paul, that was brilliant advice. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> and I must apologise if there's been any tapping through this, but um, we're actually in the Seven Dwarfs diamond mines at the moment <laughs> and the boys will be in for their tea shortly. <laughs> Paul O'Grady there. What a lovely, sparky and sharp man. And one who's very generous with his time too. It's blatantly obvious I could have stayed chatting to him all day. I hope you enjoyed listening to this, the second Attitude Heroes podcast. Sponsored by the Great Britain campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. Check out their website at www.great.gov.uk. If you haven't yet heard the first episode with Ian McKellen, you can still listen to that at your leisure. And if you don't want to miss out on future interviews with other inspirational gay men, you can subscribe to Attitude Heroes right now. I'll be back soon with another big-name guest. I'll let you know who it is in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, thanks again for listening. Bye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.